GP Insights, a health cert podcast. Practical advice for busy GPs on how to treat with confidence and grow their practice. Welcome to another episode of the HealthCert GP Insights podcast. Today we're discussing deoxycholic acid or lipodissolve injections for submental fat with L. Curry, co-founder of Aesthetic Met, Australia's first 24-7 complication and safety support service for all aesthetic practitioners. Thank you for joining us and sharing your knowledge and experience today, L. No, thank you again for having me back. You're most welcome anytime. (laughs) But let's get started. What is deoxycholic acid and how does it work to reduce submental fat? Yeah, look, um, deoxycholic acid is, we actually, um, it's a naturally occurring bile acid um, that's produced within our intestinal system. Um, And it's actually designed to assist with the breakdown and absorption of dietary fats, so fats that obviously we consume from our foods. Um, Within medicine, uh, there have been pharmaceutical companies that have kind of synthetically created products that contain deoxycholic acid, and um, they've obviously used this in medicine to break down localised fatty deposits. So for conditions, I guess medical conditions um, like lipomas or actually even they've used it intravenously to actually treat um, fat emboli as well, right? Um, so like with anything, it always starts out in, in medicine <laughs> with its use and then aesthetics kind of picks up a little bit, um, gets a bit of an ear. This is actually a pretty good product. Um, and there was obviously research that started to begin within its use within aesthetics for small little pockets of fat, basically. So for like those patients that I suppose that only have a tiny little area of, of fullness, not really warranting perhaps surgical intervention. Um, so... And realistically, like fullness, I suppose, in the submental region is actually a fairly common concern for a lot of aesthetic patients that come in. And even in a lot of those cases, it's it's patients that are actually perhaps quite slim, quite fit, they're very active, and it is just this stubborn little pocket, which is likely when you're talking to these patients, they've actually likely got a hereditary element to it. So you'll, you'll notice that their mum or their father or the sisters or whoever actually have that same kind of um, submental fullness as well. So, yeah, obviously needless to say there's been enough research um, to kind of show that injections of deoxycholic acid um, and compounds containing deoxycholic acid actually can obviously help with a long-term reduction, I guess, in that submental fat. So basically dissolving the fat cells in a non-surgical way. Almost sounds too good to be true. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the term lipodissolve has been used for many years. Can you explain the history of this treatment and the differences between approved and unapproved products? Yeah, sure. Look, lipodissolve, I guess, is a term that's kind of been coined within aesthetics that really is just referring to a fat busting or fat dissolving treatment. Um, And look, usually it is referring to injectable lipolysis. So um, look, early on, there used to be a formulation, uh, a brand essentially that was called Lipostable. And that was actually um, originally only indicated for IVs within medicine. So that was obviously to treat fat and blood. It was obviously then used in aesthetics. However, that usage was kind of considered off-label back in the day. So a lot of the earlier formulations that potentially were not that brand um, that were actually created, I guess, from pharmaceutical compounding um, and actually lipostable itself actually contained another phospholipid within that um, 
compound or that product. Um, and that phospholipid is called phosphatidylcholine. Sorry about that, a bit of a long word. Um, and at the time, originally, when obviously they were using it in, in aesthetics, they actually believed that it was that phosphatidylcholine that was actually an active ingredient that resulted in the breakdown of the fats. Um, however, obviously, down the line, obviously, in terms of there was more research being done, actually looking at the molecular components of it and exactly which was the active ingredient. And they, a lot of the research actually identified that it was really actually deoxycholic acid that was the primary um, molecule that was actually looking at that fat cell destruction. So I think there have certainly been, and there still is, um, I guess, usage of both deoxycholic acid alone. So there is one approved brand here within Australia and, and globally as well um, that only contains deoxycholic acid. But there are obviously many practitioners and healthcare practitioners that are using pharmaceutical compounded um, deoxycholic acid and phosphatidylcholine. Um, now, so there has been some research, I suppose, that have looked at split studies and comparing the two. And obviously there's, there's always favourable for, for both arguments. Um, I think some of the literature that has emerged has looked at suggesting or showcasing in terms of the split side studies, looking at the compound that contains both deoxycholic acid and phosphatidylcholine as actually attributing less swelling to that area post-treatment. So I think, look, again, there's a lot of variables that could be within that. So I think we'd probably be wanting a little bit more research, I suppose, before we draw many conclusions. But a lot of, um, there is a lot of suggestions that perhaps maybe um, PC actually helps to aid in the removal of that broken down fat that deoxygen has resulted from the DC injection. So I think, look, it'd be interesting to kind of see if there's any more split, split sort of studies that have been done. Um, but look, I mean, ultimately, you know, from a, from a safety perspective, AMET does really tend to try and get people to use, I guess, products that have been through a rigorous testing process. So like through the TGA, the FDA, so using approved brands, obviously the processes that it, takes and the, the research that it takes to submit to actually get approval for these things is far greater um, and you know it, it, there's a lot of hoops to go through before you can get that approval um, I know I do know back in 2010 I think it was the FDA actually issued a warning about lipo dissolve in terms of using injectable lipolysis in the aesthetic industry and and really that was primarily because there were a lot of different compounds in the industry and so Obviously, these compounds that are being made from a pharmaceutical aspect, whilst they may still, yes, absolutely work, there's no standardised, you know, framework that they're operating within. So there's a lot of variability between different pharmacists and different actual, um, I guess, products at the end of the day. So one, one, you know, I guess, product that comes out from a batch might be different to another. Um, and then I think in terms of the, the warning that was issued, it was very much about the lack, I suppose, at the time of industry training. So because it wasn't, there wasn't any kind of approved brand, sorry, earlier in the day, there wasn't really a training pathway or a training platform. And so, you know, um, there is obviously adverse events associated with the, with the treatment, which, um, you know, I guess we can go through um, in a little bit. But, yeah, essentially it does need to have a structured pathway for training. Um, and it really needs to be, you know, I suppose, injected by people that are actually already experienced in aesthetics and have a good sound anatomical knowledge. 
that would be ideal. Definitely yes. <laughs> a space to watch and will continue evolving quite yes, quickly, yeah, I'm absolutely. sure. Yeah. So when you perform a patient assessment, what are some of the considerations that help to determine suitability? Well, primarily the patient needs to ideally actually be bothered by the appearance of their submental fullness. So it actually needs to be something that is bothering them. I think it's, for me, I suppose, in my experience, I don't, I don't really feel like it's a treatment that should necessarily just be added on or pushed onto a patient. It really has to be something that I guess it is their primary concern of that region. But it also, the submental fullness also has to be related to fat and not the aging process. So sometimes obviously we can get submental fullness just purely from surrounding areas in the lower face, perhaps just dropping or drooping with age. Um, so it's really important obviously to make sure that we understand as practitioners how to differentiate between different types of fullness. Um, and the patient does need to have good elasticity and, and with minimal skin laxity as an ideal. Um, you also need to make sure, I suppose, as a practitioner that you've done an anatomical assessment. So there are obviously other medical conditions that can kind of cause, I suppose, submental fullness. So things like obviously thyroid enlargement, any kind of illness that might involve, you know, cervical lymphadenopathy. Sorry, my, my words are great today. Um, anything that, you know, you could possibly think of that I guess could be, you know, potentially a medical cause for that submental fullness has to be ruled out ideally. Um, and if you're remotely in doubt, really, you, you need to make sure that you've qualified that in terms of diagnostic. Um, I guess the patient also needs to understand that, you know, they may need multiple treatments to actually achieve the desired results. And I guess where the treatment limitations are, I guess, I suppose, is really from a safety zone, going too far lateral increases the risk of adverse events. And so, um, and it's really only looking at the superficial fat compartments and not the deeper fat compartments. So having a discussion like that, letting the patient know as well other treatment modality options, just so that they're obviously fully informed. Um, and they also need to understand what the expected downtime is. So there is definitely some swelling <laughs> after the treatment and that's to be expected. Um, they need to kind of know that and need to be willing to, I guess, push through that from the long-term goal of the aesthetic results. Um, exactly. So what are some of the risks and side effects of this treatment, apart from the swelling? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, and look, I think, you know, it's, it's funny because obviously adverse events is kind of just a very big, broad term, but really with side effects or treatment, expected treatment effects, it really is kind of where I would put under pain, you know, things like pain during the treatment as well as after the treatment, um, bruising, swelling, redness, a little bit of firmness in the area is actually fairly, fairly common in terms of after deoxycholic acid treatments. Um, look, that's all what you would expect from the treatment and it kind of indicates that you're most likely going to get a good aesthetic outcome, right? Um, so that obviously always needs to be discussed with the patient, definitely. But we do need to kind of make sure that we do cover the uncommon and even the really rare side effects so that they know um, what is actually possible to happen. Um, look, uncommonly, you can certainly get, it's basically damage to the surrounding structures, essentially. So whether they be deeper or perhaps more lateral or superior, wherever they're located. Um, one of the more commonly known about is an injury of the marginal mandibular nerve, and that can actually cause um, an asymmetrical smile, I suppose. So essentially that's just the case of some of the deoxycholic acid obviously injuring and, um, the actual nerve ending. 
Now, nerves do tend to regenerate, and so it, it is a temporary um, kind of, I guess, asymmetry. However, there have been some cases in the literature that it has lasted kind of beyond the 12-month mark, um, but ultimately it will return to normal at the end of the day. Um, things like nodule formation, which can sometimes be kind of visible on the surface or if not palpable underneath, you can get skin necrosis, um, and that's basically caused from too superficial of an injection. So whilst we're looking at the superficial fat compartment, we're not looking at injecting into the skin. Okay, so if we're injecting a bile acid into the skin, it will destroy the, the dermis. So that can kind of result in some ulceration as well. So it's really important that the practitioner is experienced in being able to understand the depth of injection and be able to kind of correlate that with the patient's natural anatomy. Um, in terms of males that are looking at having treatment as well, there's a lot more kind of research, I suppose, emerging about looking at post-treatment alopecia to the injection site. So men that obviously have a beard in that submental region, they kind of need to know about there may be a possibility at these injection sites that there might be some hair loss. Um, and that's not with everybody. I um, mean, there's very variable rates of it occurring even up to 33%, but then you know, less than in and around 15%. So in saying that, though, from the studies that I've read, as much as it might have a higher kind of prevalence rate, it actually doesn't really deter the men from having the treatment. Again, so they'll have multiple treatments anyway, and it is an area that can be shaved and, and clean cut in that submental area region. So it's not actually on their beard. It's just at the localised areas of injection sites. So um, it is fairly easy to kind of manage from that perspective. But I guess they just need to make sure we cover it off in case they like to grow their beard and not maintain it as, as clean cut as some others. Um, and I think in terms of the rarer side effects as well, there's, again, more literature emerging about actually vascular events so not necessarily occlusions as such, but events that are involving, I guess, deoxycholic acid being injected into or near a vessel, right? And that obviously um, can, again, result in skin breakdown, scarring, can result in compromised circulation, some of the studies that have been done. So, again, pretty rare, really important to obviously know your anatomy and the surrounding structures. Um, but, again, it's one of those things that, there's absolutely anatomical variances, particularly with our facial vasculature. So it's things for practitioners and patients, obviously, that they need to know about. Absolutely. So what should practitioners consider before implementing this treatment within their aesthetic practice? Yeah, I think for me, like, first and foremost, really, it's the experience level of the treating practitioner. So it's how many years, I guess, they have been in aesthetic medicine, what they're currently doing within aesthetic medicine. Have they been injecting dermal fillers and botulinum toxin? Do they have a really good sound knowledge of facial anatomy? I think even if you have a sound knowledge of facial anatomy, you're not necessarily, we're not with dermal fillers and toxin, we're not necessarily, you know, translating that to that submental and neck region. So I think, you know, there is still a lot to learn, even for very experienced practitioners. Um, however, in saying that, I guess if you have, that base of facial anatomy, you can then translate that to another area and you'll understand how it all kind of is connected as well. Um, I think, and again, like I was saying before, in terms of the experience is also crucial in obviously being able to recognise appropriate patients. That's a huge part of safety in this treatment is patient selection and assessment. 
you know, the actual mechanics of injecting, whilst, yes, it does have to understand where the fat layer is and not to go too deep and not to go too superficial, that's actually the easier part. The harder part is actually understanding and being able to do that anatomical assessment prior to the treatment and being able to identify, you know, suitable candidates, I guess, from that. Um, and I guess, you know, you need to make sure that you have protocols in place to manage the rare events, right? So, yes, many of them are temporary in nature, but they're also not able to be reversed, right? And so there needs to be protocols in place that, you know, whereby if there is an ulceration or if there, whether it would be too superficial injection or, or a vascular event of some kind, if there's skin ulceration, there needs to be protocols in place for managing that skin breakdown and to minimise the scarring and to be able to refer on out, you know, for to a specialist if need be, like a dermatologist as an example. Um, so those sorts of protocols definitely need to be in place. Um, I think it's also kind of important from a practice, you know, and a business standpoint is that, you know, you really need to look at are there actually enough patients in coming into that practice that are actually complaining of these fat pockets and are you actually losing a lot of business from that? You know, the, the benefit has to outweigh the risk, I think, with anything that we implement in our aesthetic practice um, at the end of the day. And, yes, it might be, I guess, appealing in terms of, I guess, return on investment and profitability, but really when you're weighing up that, that risk versus benefit and, and if you've only got very few people coming in, then as a, as a practitioner you're not, doing a lot of those treatments every time we do treatments we skill ourselves up more and more and we become more and more experienced so if you're only getting one a month or one even every two weeks is that really enough to warrant you know bringing this treatment in um, and then I think you also have to look at other modalities and other treatments right so there are energy-based devices that are on the market that can target this area so if you already have something in your practice that is already targeting that then probably implementing this is just going to encroach on that business? Um, or do you find that maybe some of the patients that are coming in, they might have like that combination of both skin laxity as well as maybe a little bit of submental fullness, in which case maybe it's better to get something that is an energy-based device treatment that is dedicated to tightening the skin and, and those kinds of things with maybe a little bit of improvement. Not quite as much improvement as, as perhaps these products with, with fat reduction, but, you know, it's really actually assessing your patients and seeing what exactly is coming through your doors for all your location and your demographic, I think, is really important. So if practitioners want to learn more and make use of the great service that AMET provides, how can they find out more and join? Yeah, sure. So they just need to head to the website. It's really easy to just click join us. And the website address is www.aestheticmet.com. And yeah, obviously we have, like I said, we've had a, a large members area filled with a lot of unbiased and independent, you know, kind of safety information. And, um, yeah, obviously deoxycholic acid is on there. There is there is pretty limited support and training for this particular product um, out there. So I think it is we have had a lot of requests and, you know, and we're still building on it as well in terms of what information we've got under that particular section. But, yeah, we're obviously always open for, for any feedback from any practitioners out there that are looking for more information as well. So. Thank you so much, Elle, for talking to us and running us through deoxycholic acid or lipodissolve injections for submental fat. We really appreciate it. No, thank you again for having me.
Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe so you can get updates whenever we post more. And please share it with others. And for more info, please go to helpsert.com.